Hey, it's Jed Hearn, host of Wizards, Warriors, and Words. If you're enjoying the writing advice on this show, you might like my new podcast, The Jed Hearn Show, where every week I share the best fantasy writing advice that I've learned from publishing three fantasy novels and a best-selling video game. There's over 12 episodes that you can listen to right away, including my top 10 fantasy books of all time, how to make fantasy names that don't suck, two rules that make writing effortless, and my complete summaries of Brandon Sanderson's and Neil Gaiman's writing classes, and much more. Check it out by searching for The Jed Hearn Show in your podcast app. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello and welcome to the Wizards, Warriors and Words podcast. I'm Jed Hearn and this episode is something a little bit different. What I'm doing on this episode is I'm sharing a the first half of an episode from another podcast, the Friends Talking Fantasy podcast. And the reason I'm doing this is because I recently finished reading Joe Abercrombie's fantastic Age of Madness trilogy. And I was looking around on Spotify trying to find a really good interview with him about this series. And I came across the Friends Talking Fantasy podcast, listened to this interview where these two guys who are really, really into fantasy, who um, interviewed Joe Abercrombie. And I thought it was a fantastic interview, really funny, a lot of great writing insights in there as well. So I reached out to them and basically asked if I could share the first half of that interview on this podcast to Because I think that if you enjoy Wizards, Warriors and Words, you'll probably really enjoy Friends Talking Fantasy podcast. So uh, without further ado, I hope you really enjoy this little crossover kind of teaser episode. And if you enjoyed this first half of the discussion, you can listen to the rest of the discussion in full on the Friends Talking Fantasy podcast, and I'll put a link to that down below. So now, enjoy this fantastic interview with the one and only Joe Abercrombie. Welcome to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy podcast. And Dylan, can we just acknowledge the best-selling author in the room, please? <laughs> yeah, it's not just any best-selling author today, Charles. It mm-hmm. is... And we have with us today a New York Times bestselling author, Locus Award winner, and lord of all that is grim and all that is dark, the author of the first Law World Books and Shattered Sea trilogy, with the third and final book in the Age of Madness, The Wisdom of Crowds, releasing tomorrow, September 14th. Welcome to Friends Talking Fantasy, Joe Abercrombie. Yeah. I'm actually getting quite excited myself <laughs> with an introduction like that. I was like, there's, there's, there's someone important and exciting that's going to appear on the show. I didn't it's know. You. Oh, it's you. Joe, it's you. No, we have been like super excited to have you on for a long time. We've been reading through 
all the books in the world of the first law for like, how long has it taken us doing six to nine months to read and talk about them on the show? And we've done character studies and all that. So at the, it's you almost know, as long as it took me to write them. <laughs> That's very <laughs> impressive. Yeah. I mean, we spent a lot of hours recording, so we put a equal time, I'd say, you know, in, yeah. into the world of the first law. In many yeah. ways. Exactly. I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> so now today on the eve of the release of wisdom of crowds i mean this is just the like a climactic ending to our read through of the series so thank you so much for coming on oh hey it's a pleasure and thanks for you know the attention you've been giving the books i mean it's always great when anyone reads them you know this is nonsense that i dreamed up in the middle of the night for my own amusement <laughs> not realizing anyone would ever find it interesting so that there are people who are willing to put hours of their lives into thinking about it and analyzing it and chewing over it is, is a huge compliment. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Dylan, you know, I can picture Joe Abercrombie at night thinking about all these bloody murders and dismay and just a smile <laughs> on his face <laughs> as he gently drips off into sleep. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, it's somewhat alarming, but we have had an incredible time reading all these late night murder thoughts that you've been having, Joe. So it's, it's unbelievable to have you here. So grateful. And I guess we'll just get started with these questions. I, yeah, sure. Uh, let's let's the, go. Fire in. What yeah. do you want to know? What can I tell you? Okay. <laughs> we'll put you to the well, test. That's our goal. <laughs> so Joe, I've been reading your books for a long time now. I've been following uh, the stuff you've been putting out. The Blade itself was originally published in 2006. Uh, and your nine books and one short story collection into this world. And we've see we feel like we've seen so much uh, growth and evolution uh, from you as an author. Uh, where would you say you have grown or improved most? Well, it's important to underline that I'm still very much a fresh new voice in the genre. You know, I think <laughs> okay, of course, uh, of course. in that introduction, there's an implication that I might be getting long in the tooth, you know, getting on an age, <laughs> around a bit, part of the furniture, whereas nothing could be further from the truth, you know, still very much fresh on the scene, young, dynamic, punk maverick. Yes. Still turning this, this genre very upside punk. down after all these years. I think it's important to establish that as a, as a baseline. Absolutely. Um, but yes. I suppose there have been a few changes, not just in the uh, amount of hair on top of my head, but also <laughs> in the writing style More now. approach to writing generally. I mean, I think I've learned to get a better result much more quickly and to be a lot more mm. efficient in the way that I kind of revise and go over things, certainly that. But really, you know, it's the same approach as it was at the start in, in broad terms. The idea was always to kind of do fantasy with the gloves off, do fantasy that was to some degree mm. shocking and surprising, a kind of approach to fantasy like Unforgiven is to the Western, you know, a sort of revisionist mm. style that's a bit a bit grittier uh, and nastier that focuses on the seedy side of life and the sort of grayer areas rather than the, the heroic and the, and the and the villainous, if you like, rather than keeping things black and white. And it was to get very much in the heads of the characters, you know, get the yeah. reader rather than seeing the world in big wide shots of spectacular mountain ranges and glorious cities on the hill with these tiny little figures a bit indistinct. I wanted to do big sweaty close-ups 
<laughs> like a spaghetti mm. western, you know. I wanted to, the the reader to feel pressed right up against these unpleasant, weird, strange-smelling characters. And in that sense, you know, the approach is is very much the same. You know, I guess I've tried to take on more things as I've gone. I've tried to, you know, get a lot more female characters in there. Uh, mm -hmm. Think a little bit more about the range of people that I'm that I'm covering, but fundamentally, I don't think it's radically different. You know, and obviously these books are all set in the same world and are kind of of a piece, and so it makes sense that they should feel consistent and basically have the same approach. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we feel you've stayed very true to your dark, twisted soul as you've moved through all this. And the the characters, for sure, Joe, it feels like uh, that that voice and the way that you get into their heads and their perspectives, it absolutely blows our minds. And especially uh, some of those chapters that you'll write, like uh, casualties and the little people uh, where you'll rapidly switch point of view. That's one of the things that we've been most impressed by that way that you so quickly ground us in a character in their voice. And then, uh, Move on to the next round and move. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, so. Uh, we're curious about uh, your use of point of view and what inspired you to be able to flip around like that in those chapters. Yeah, I suppose um, I, I always wanted to do this thing where you were sort of very much in the head of the character and where the you know I wanted the writing to feel like it really mirrored the voice of the character and told you something about the person all the time. So that, you know, the ideal for me is that you can read a few lines of a chapter and know straight away whose head you're in, because hopefully mm -hmm. the, the writing feels distinctive and, and like you're really in conversation, in an intimate conversation with that person. So I suppose that's always been the, uh, the cornerstone. I mean, that, that particular trick of, of sort of passing through a whole sequence of extras that kind of rose out of the heroes particularly, which obviously was this, mm -hmm. this big picture war story. It was intended to show the sort of scale and chaos of a battle from both sides. Mm. And it just seemed to suit yeah. that particular story. It seemed to be a good way to, to kind of get across the scale of events while still keeping track of the individual caught up in the events, if you like, and a good way to get out of the heads of the main cast and, get a big cross section through all the, all the sorts of people that are in there, because, you know, there are often a lot of characters you might be interested in showing who aren't necessarily the big people, aren't necessarily the right. players, mm. the movers and shakers, the people you've picked as being particularly fascinating. They're not people who'd sustain a three book story. Maybe some of them are, I don't know, maybe I'm being right. unfair, but uh, <laughs> they're, they're kind of, you know, you it's a good way to get from, Marshall right at the top of the pecking order to Grunt right at the bottom and to sit and everyone in between and to really give you a sense mm. of that cross section through society. And that just seemed to fit very nicely in the age of madness as well, where it's, it's sort of a, a bit of a social study of the, of the whole world yeah. and the world going through change. And so it felt like a great way to, to pick out some individuals and, and dip it at the heads of a whole section of different people of immigrants of, workers of owners and and this mm. kind of the, the range of opinion and feeling that's that's going on i agree completely and also to me you see kind of the the consequences of some of the actions of the big people because when you write povs of your main yeah. characters you're 
almost always very committed to their point of view and their biases and their ignorance. So you have someone who's like running all these factories and then there's a rebellion and you're like, I, how could this have happened? Right. But then you go through the little <laughs> people and you see someone who had no stake in where they're ended up and through circumstance. And just like, I just want to like, I'm just thinking about going home to my family and up oh, there's a, someone coming at me with an ax. I guess I'm dead now. And you're like, wow. Cause it's this mm. element of life is cheap. And then also the consequence of the decisions made by these big people that they may have never considered that we get to consider as an author. So in those cases, I was like, this is <laughs> incredible. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm always uh, conscious of, you know, in fantasy, a lot of violent heroes who carve their way through scads of henchmen. You know, you don't, you don't really think yeah. too much about the henchmen. There's that brilliant scene, Lost in Powers. And if you want, the, you know, the one I'm thinking of, where a henchman dies, and then he goes to visit all the friends of the henchman who are having fond memories of him, and he was such a great henchman. You know, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think it's nice to dip into the heads of a lot of the the small kind of individuals around, and that hopefully helps to to humanize the cast altogether and mm. see them as you know people very much inserted into society you know everyone's part of a, yeah. of a network and hopefully it brings that to life a little right it definitely drives home the cost in a way that you you can't just kill your main point of view characters all willy-nilly and mm. you gotta keep them around because you're telling their stories and then you do this job where you can get us attached to a new character and all their uh, wants and their needs and their relationships, you know, sometimes they'll be thinking about their wife back home. And then all of a sudden they take a pike to the chest and you're like, Oh wow, this, this really kills people and hurts people. Yeah. And you want the world to feel dangerous. You know, I think uh, one of the things that frustrated me a bit about some of the fantasy that I read as a kid, you know, or, eventually after reading a lot of stuff i started to find it quite predictable you know and to and to think yeah. there was no real danger in the world you know and mm -hmm. whenever anyone suffered it was only a kind of temporary thing you know people tend to walk mm -hmm. away from everything without a huge amount of consequences and have a happy ending and you want the world yeah. to feel dangerous you want to be scared for the people because if there's no sense that you know it really is going to be genuinely dangerous i think that that takes away a huge amount you know, but when you really do feel the world's dangerous, it changes things immensely. I mean, Game of Thrones, it's a small little yeah. known book. You may not be aware of it, uh, written by a guy called George R. R. Martin. I think Game, of what? Game of what? Never heard of it. <laughs> no? Could be big one of these days. Yeah. Uh, I think it'll have its moment. But, um, you know, reading the first That's of those up. books back in the day, as I did, mm. before I was writing myself, you know, there's an important moment without wanting to give away any spoilers of this little known book, but there's an important moment where a main character <laughs> dies. And yes. you know, that, that seems shocking now, but at the time it was, it was really mind blowing, you know, because I'd never oh, yeah. seen something oh, like yeah. that yeah. in that kind of book. Mm -hmm. You know, that doesn't happen in that kind of book. So for sure, it suddenly felt like the gloves were off and fantasy was dangerous and, you know, shocking again. And that's something I've always wanted to retain ever since, I guess. That's true. Yeah. That was a shocking moment. And it's good that we're giving, you know, these smaller books uh, some spotlight here. Absolutely. The least we could Definitely. do. <laughs> uh, oh, I rearranged my shelves. I used to have my copy of Game of Thrones right to hand. Right in arm's reach. I, I was going to whip it out. And oh, no. I could try to hand you mine, but I don't think that's how Zoom works. So. <laughs> that's yeah. Sadly, not. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, your Game of Thrones inspiration is very, very clear. It's actually how I got into your books was uh, way back and 
those kind of moments in Game of Thrones that were uh, shocking and changed the way that we think about the fantasy genre, then I was like, okay, where do we go from here? And uh, your name was coming up a, a ton and it, it really shines through your uh, willingness to, uh, we think of it like you, you use the pieces on your chessboard really, really well. Like, you know, which character belongs where, and you know, when it's time for uh, them to be taken off the chessboard. And uh, we've always really appreciated the shocking character moments and, in your books. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've got to be, you've got to be willing to go there. I mean, I suppose it's difficult to kill off your central cast, as you were saying, I think there's there's a there's a tough balance to strike there. You want people to feel risk. You don't want them to feel it's safe. You want them to feel anyone can go at any moment. But yeah. at the same time, you want the story to be the story of something, you know. And if you progressively mm. kill off your central cast, eventually there's a question of what is it now the story of, you know? Because fundamentally, if characters yeah. are the heart of it, then it's the story of a set of characters, you know? And so there are other things you can do with characters other than kill them, I suppose, which is still, you know... Are you sure? Talking <laughs> unpleasant or, or dangerous in one way or another. That's yes. You'll take away sometimes the thing, and we aren't in the spoilers part yet, so we'll okay, uh, sure. keep it vague, but you'll take away some of the th things that the characters most treasure and leave them to just psychologically grapple with that. And to me, that's way more interesting than death because death is so final. It doesn't have these psychological ramifications that you'll explore. Yeah. I mean, I like to break them down and see what happens. Yeah. You know, that's sort of the part of the fun. I think as particularly in this, in this, in the age of madness, you know, like the first law had a lot of characters who were these outside loners, you know, they were mm -hmm. people who'd lost their families, lost their friends, decided to turn their back on what they knew had struck out into the unknown. So, you know, Logan had left everything he knew behind. Pharaoh has escaped uh, the destruction yeah. of everything she knows. Um, Glockter's obviously this kind of withered outsider everyone's turned their back on for one reason or another. And so it had a lot of these people who are kind of on their own. And with nothing to lose in some cases, or with not a lot to lose, you know, people who've suffered a lot in the past and are kind of trying to pick up the pieces. Whereas Age of Madness has, in general, some younger characters who are much more part of their world, you know, are quite successful within their world, yeah. perhaps who are at the top of society in some cases, who have mm. families and friend groups around them supporting them. Um, and so it was nice to have these people with so much to lose, you know. Yeah. So, so much on the line with so much promise to destroy. You know? and that was actually quite <laughs> mm. fun to be able to break those sort of people down, then rebuild them and see how they cope. Yeah. And that was one of the most fascinating things to me after reading the first law trilogy to reading the age of madness is that you have characters that have families and also they're in many cases, descendants of previous POV right. characters as well. Yeah. So if that kind of, is what makes this trilogy stand out more so compared to the first law. And we were curious about how you went about writing characters that are like, oh, Glock does my dad. And so, mm -hmm. Did it involve <laughs> a lot of deliberation or did, you, or did these characters come to you pretty naturally? I suppose it was kind of a mixture of things. I mean, generally the approach with these books has always been, you know, focus on the new cast 
tell the new story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if there is a slot there for a parent or a mentor or uh, a senior member of government that is a pain in the ass, whoever it may be, <laughs> why not fill it with someone who's already on the shelf? You know, someone who's got some wear, right. a new story, maybe know a little bit of. So mm. one can imagine that in the blade itself, you know, there might have been a previous story in which Morovia and Salt and people were the the young heroes of that story, and there were a different set of old mm. codgers in the background. You know? <laughs> so it's natural that as you come forward, <laughs> you know, the, the young heroes become the old codgers in the next in the next series. And mm-hmm. I think as long as you you make sure you don't kind of slip into fan service where it suddenly becomes the show of those older people, you know, you've got to stick mm. in the heads of your current cast and make it about them, the focus on them. But it's still nice to have those callbacks, and it's nice to have those characters on the shelf. You know, when you when you need a, an old Lord Marshal, you know, you can stick Brint in that yeah. role. And he's never been a big, major central character, but he's a character who's been through some stuff and who you know about a little bit. And so effortlessly, you've got a load of history there. That character's mm. got a whole load of patina on them that you can make use of. Right. So in the case of, you know, obviously a lot of the central cast in Age of Madness are the descendants or the protégés in one way or another of a lot of the central cast in the first law. And so in that case, you've got some, some big figures, you know, they're in the shadow of some really big figures. I mean, both mm-hmm. in, in the terms of the book, you know, they're the children of Kings or the children of, you know, really senior, powerful people, huge figures within the, but also in terms of the reader, they know these people well, you know, and they, they loom large yeah. in their minds, hopefully. So you've kind of got a lot to pay off, but I think you've also got a huge amount to draw on, you know, the, there's a mm-hmm. lot of responsibility, but there's a lot of material, and mm-hmm. that's generally helpful. Right. So when you're looking at a character like Savine, she obviously has Glockter and RD as parents <laughs> who are kind of big, yeah. vivid, powerful <laughs> figures in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of fun to imagine how they might have developed and how their relationship might have developed and what kind of upbringing a child might have yeah. had and what kind of child they would produce, you know? Yeah. <laughs> what bits of the two of them come through and what bits that are unique, you know? What bits that are unique to this period in which they're appearing? Because it's a period of huge upheaval where one mm-hmm. generation and the next are, are, are very different. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. So I suppose all those things were kind of on my mind, but it's still mostly a kind of trial and error. It's still <laughs> mostly right. when you sit down and start writing what happens, you know, and I've kind of learned over time that however much planning you do and however much thought you put in before the fact, there's no substitute for sitting down and actually writing it. Mm. And so the plan with these books was always to write all three as a draft because I kind of knew that I'd work out what I was writing as I wrote, you know, Mm. and it wasn't until I finished a draft that I'd really know what needed to be done to the front, to the first book to make it work as well as I could. Mm-hmm. Um, so that trial and error part of it was still, you know, really important. And in the case of Savine, for you know, as an example, initially I gave her an internal voice like Lockter's. I thought, you know, this would make sense. Oh, right. Italicized yeah. internal voice, a cunning <laughs> person who, you know, is thinking yeah. clever acid things. Uh, and it's the same as her father, so that kind of makes sense. But it didn't really work. Mm. No, and mm. uh, I wrote the first third of that book in that way. But I was always, whereas with Glockter, it was always fun to use that voice and there were always things occurring to yeah. me to say in that voice. Mm-hmm. With Savine, I'd always be trying to think of things to say and I'd be mm-hmm. saying the same stuff but in her internal voice. And the reason came to me pretty quickly, 
you know, the, the joy of Savine is she says whatever she thinks. Mm-hmm. There's no dissonance. Mm. Yeah. Doctor doesn't say yeah. what he thinks. He always says the opposite. Yeah. You know, huh. He says one thing and he thinks another because right. he's always guarded. He's always mm-hmm. plotting. Whereas yeah, the joy yeah. of Savine is, you know, she'll just tell you to your face <laughs> and, and, and laugh right. while she does yeah. it. You know, that's, that's her power. So it didn't really mm-hmm. make any sense to have this internal voice. So I took it out. That's you know, she worked much better, you know, on her own terms, I guess. Yeah. And it makes sense as a character who grew up with, uh, I mean, Glockta grew up with a lot of privilege, but then got uh, heavily grounded. And as a character who hasn't had that moment yet where she's gotten humbled, that uh, why would she not just say exactly what she's thinking? It sounds like you trust her intuition with that. Yeah. So much, as you say, so much power and privilege in so many ways, you know, she really can lord it over people quite effectively. (laughs) Yeah. And that's the other thing about, because we are, there's like the next generation of cast, right? And you talked about how having the previous generation to pull on as, you know, nice tools to have in your back pocket. It also brings in this theme that you have of how kind of history needs to be relearned by the next generation. You have so many wise characters Mm. that are parents that we loved as main characters in previous books. And then you see like Leo, like, Oh, I'll be a legend, like the bloody nine. And then I'm like, the dogman's like, Oh God, what are you doing? So (laughs) So as many times as these parents have tried to teach these lessons, you, you get this added benefit when their generation, of like you get to see them make the same mistakes and you know i get the sense that history is a like just actual history is a huge influence in creating this world as well like i've seen book tours of yours where you have tons of like nonfiction history books and things like that so i can imagine this mm-hmm. having to relearn history or being doomed to repeat it kind of theme being used when you bring in generational characters yeah absolutely and i've always kind of liked that circular that circular shape, you know, and the first mm-hmm. law obviously has a very self-consciously yes. circular shape yeah. for everyone involved in it. <laughs> and uh, I suppose fantasy often has a, a very linear shape, you know, epic fantasy of the classic Tolkien mold, you know, it has a, mm. a linear shape in which people grow and change uh, yeah. and they go from peasants to kings or they go from, you know, used up men of violence to healed guys who can contribute once more and the world is often healed and there are transformative wars where things come good in the end, you know, and a new epoch is ushered in <laughs> at the end of, the, of those things often following a final battle. Whereas right. if you look at the battle of our world as, as final battles, <laughs> there's not a lot different afterwards. You know, things often go back to how they're right. more seeds of the next conflict mm. is implicit in the last and so i kind of enjoy those circular motions and the feeling that this isn't some epochal moment of change it's just one more moment in an ongoing history that kind of has no no start and no end it, it went on before the start and it will go on after and it feels like an episode within a a wider world if you like right right yeah there's that great casca quote in uh, this would be best served cold i believe where he's like yeah and uh, people might change and might do all these kind of things but it's like uh, but given time they change back and oh, it's, yeah. it feels so true that is best to the message yeah <laughs> uh, the message that you said uh, throughout the first law and uh, yet yeah, uh, in this 
downland and we're progressing through the age of madness if progress is even the right word for it <laughs> yeah and i think some readers find that kind of frustrating you know there are, there are readers who mm. find Koska frustrating you know because he's this very charismatic kind of glamorous character in some ways but he's also unable to you know he's unable to be positive he's unable to make progress he always reverts and a lot of the characters revert and i find that you know a lot of people revert it's that classic thing of you know you you yeah. think oh I put on put on some weight I go on a diet you go on a diet you lose some weight but I mean you never lose the weight forever yeah. you know the weight comes back yeah. you know it's about it's not a battle yeah. you win it's a battle that's fought daily every day and the same is true of everything the same is true of being a better person of changing yourself one way or another so this kind of idea of wonderful transformations in people is is sort of a has always seemed to me a little bit of a dangerous myth in a way, because mm. things just are never yeah. that easy for people. Yeah, Especially I mean, one of, my oh, one of my favorite things about the first Law Trilogy was watching Jazal unlearn his lessons. You know, to me, that's such a quintessential <laughs> thing. And it has me genuinely scared for some of these characters in uh, yeah. The Age of Madness, too. We'll, we'll, we'll see where the last book goes. But to me, that's like, it's part of human nature. And that's what some of these characters capture so well. And one of the things that I've always loved about the world of the first law is your willingness to commit sometimes to who these characters are and you fans love Glockta, fans love logan but then you commit to them being like unlearning their lessons and sometimes doing unpopular things and writing moments where they turn their backs on loved ones or family or be extra violent yeah. and doing things that are not heroic and it's it's what makes the world, like you said, circular and 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 lived in. And it's part of that that grimdark charm we've all come to appreciate. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. You know, I suppose that was, in a way, it was just what emerged naturally from writing the story and, and you know, just what seemed like the right outcomes for people. And it, with the first law, certainly a lot of it was about consciously doing the opposite of what classic fantasy might do, you know. So in in, in some ways, it's kind of, obvious you know whatever works in fantasy would fail there <laughs> i've always been really interested in failure you know i don't think failure gets covered enough um things going wrong and and war generally is the story as much of failure if not more about failure and mistakes than it is about success you know we're always offered these million to one shots that just happen to come off rather than the each way bets that go wrong for people you know which is generally what yeah. it's about Funny enough, I watched The Bridge Too Far again the other day with my son. You know, the film about Operation Market Garden, the big paratroop thing that went on at Arnhem in the mm. Second World War. And uh, that's everything in that is about failure. And it's just a constant mm. story of little mistakes that are made that add up to bigger mistakes on both sides, you know. And it's kind of just this, this fascinating thing of, you know, the one who wins is often the one who makes the fewer or the less bad mistakes rather than the one who makes that one glorious charge. You know, it's not, right. the world's not really about that. Right. Yeah. And I'll say too, all that willingness to have characters fail, have characters revert back. Uh, to me, it makes it even more rewarding when some characters do eke out that growth. And I do think sure. we we see that, especially in Red Country, I feel like uh, the... I would say a shy and temple. I, I perceive them as sincerely growing. Maybe not every character in that yeah. book displays growth. Uh, yeah. But when you see that happen, it's like so earned that these characters fought tooth and nail for uh, growth in, in your dark, cynical world. 
Well, one cannot have light without shadow, I guess, you know. <laughs> and in the darkness, a, a tiny candle flame will yeah. shine so brightly. Very, very well spoken. That's and beautiful. it doesn't surprise me at all yes. that Dylan reverts to talking about characters and psychology and things because, Joe, you and Dylan actually have uh, something in common here. You're right. both students mm. of psychology. Ah, uh, you you have a bachelor's in psychology, yeah. Joe, and then Dylan here is actually a PhD candidate in clinical psychology, right, Dylan? Is that correct? Counseling. Counseling, Counseling psychology. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, serious then. <laughs> a lot further than me. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of the things we wanted <laughs> to know because we have books. this interest. Yeah, you're busy, Joe. We'll, we'll forgive you. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but ha has any of your psychology training or background influenced your writing or your characterization at all? Yeah, I mean, I think so, especially just in the sense that I think everything you do mm -hmm. finds its way into your mm -hmm. work in one way or another, you know, everything that you that you really enjoy or that you don't, everything you study, everything you read or play or watch, you know, it all kind of finds its way in there and little bits of little details of things will, you know, creep through into your writing. You can't avoid it. You wouldn't want to avoid it. That's where it all comes from. So. Definitely some bits that I've studied in psychology. And uh, I mean, in particular, one thing that I did, you know, focus on that I wrote my dissertation about was uh, was human <laughs> error and failure. It was, you know, why mm. systems fail, why ships sink, why nuclear reactors melt down. So it was about kind mm. of the nature of failure and designing systems that fail. And, you know, a lot of the reading I've done in military history and so on is kind of, you know, looks at the battles and wars in, in a kind of similar lens of why things go wrong and why things going wrong is entirely inevitable you know and how yeah massive failures can be based on small misapprehensions like you know in the nuclear reactor they make a set of sensible decisions based on the reading they've got but it turns out the dial's stuck you know that kind of mistake yeah i've always been fascinated <laughs> by that um or with the charge of the light brigade where you know this bizarre and stupid thing was done really because of the set of personality conflicts in the chain yeah. of command you know a set of people who all hated and uh, disrespected each other and a, and a set of kind of extremely unlikely situations that just happened to, at the same time to create this you know appalling disaster and so <laughs> i've always been fascinated by those those things going wrong you know because in fantasy as i say things tend to go right for the heroes or they, they'll develop these outlandish unlikely plans that then you know it all just comes together at the key moment i mean luke it's a million to one shot but the torpedoes go in <laughs> the, the yeah. tube right in the exhaust yeah. tube and it works right yeah I'd, I'd kind of be fascinated to know what happens if they just bounced off you know what's the okay. next thing what's the next step so, luke would yeah, question yeah, the I mean, force have an existential crisis run off for a while <laughs> you know that kind of thing maybe yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh so yeah i mean I've, I've definitely taken a fair bit from psychology you know um whether it's really about the the psychology of the characters i don't know i mean you will know obviously psychology as a academic discipline is not much about personality of people you know it's about behavior you know and, and scientific analysis of patterns of behavior there's a lot of statistics in it a lot of science in it it's quite dry in many cases so it's not as though i've, I've gone through massive numbers of case studies or lots of abnormal psychology or those kind of things um 
So the character writing, which is probably what people think of as coming from psychology, not so much, but mm -hmm. definitely the the way political systems and groups behave and fail is very much my thing. Yeah, it's surprising no one that you wrote a dissertation about failure is your... <laughs> I had no <laughs> problems that, believing that. That makes total sense, <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, I mean, spoiler warning, you know, there is a book where there's a big quest and the big quest obviously fails. And a lot of people yes. find that quite weird. They don't quite get what I was driving at there, but some people do find it highly <laughs> amusing. So I suppose it all just depends yeah. on on your experience and your. Uh, it's possibly a, a matter of life experience as well. Mm. I think maybe younger people who haven't been in the workplace a lot themselves find that mm. weird and don't kind of appreciate that most things go wrong at some time or another yeah. in some way or another. So yeah, it took me some time to digest the world. that one, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've come to love it. All right. I hope you like that. Uh, like I said at the start of this episode, if you enjoyed that interview, you can check out the second half, the rest of that interview with Joe Abercrombie over on the Friends Talking Fantasy podcast. And I'll put a link to that down below in the show descriptions. Cheers, and I'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.